Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wannabe Entrepreneur, the podcast about what's really like to bootstrap a company. Today, I finally made it. I was able to bring Simon Euber here in the podcast, so we'll be speaking with him about his indie journey. It's going to be a great, great conversation. Before we start, if you are a starting bootstrapper and you are feeling a little bit lonely, you don't know where to start, what should you focus on, what is this indie community, make sure to check out the WB space. We are a Slack-based community for indie makers and you can meet people from all over the world and we are all there building our projects together and supporting each other is a really, really a great spot to be in. And at the same time, we will be also supporting this podcast. So you can go to wannabe-entrepreneur.com community. The link will also be in the description. Now, let's get started with today's episode. Today, I have here with me Simon Heuberg. I hope I said your name correctly. Hey, Simon. That was uh, pretty good. Yes. Yeah, I, I, was, I was actually practicing. I was trying to do this. Uh, it's, it's, it's funnily really, it's, it's the uh, Danish name, right? It's a Danish name. Yes. Simon Heuberg in Danish. Yeah, because it's very similar to, I, I lived in Germany for, for a bit, and the pronunciation is somehow similar. It's like the Berg kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... Again, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to speak here with the Wannabe Entrepreneurs. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, Simon is the founder of FitHive, but I think that's just a, a tiny bit of what you actually are, right? I mean, you are a content creator. You have amazing content helping makers to start their businesses and like find ways of reaching... Uh, well, that's not a real passive income, of course. There's always a lot of work, but reaching this kind of indie lifestyle that everyone wants here in, in our community. You also have great content on Instagram and a lot of other platforms. And uh, you are also now starting a new SaaS called LinkDrip. Super exciting. I will also like to speak about that. And today we'll be basically speaking about your journey. And now you just told me that you're re closing in into 400 ARR for FitHive, which is a number that we can only dream of. It, it's really, really amazing. So yeah, today it will be all about yeah your journey, how you're able to reach here. And, and we'll try to learn from you so that we can also try to apply and at least dream to reach to, to those numbers. To start things off, I would love to ask you to do like a little introduction about yourself, a little bit also about your background before becoming an indie maker, if that's okay. Absolutely. I would love to. Well, actually, I have uh, originally, like way back, I have a background in sales, which I started out at around 18, 19 years old, and I did that for uh, quite some years ahead. And then on the side... Uh, when, when I was in sales, I was mostly selling, um, working with selling software. So I got naturally more and more curious about the whole product development part. And uh, a little later, I started doing my own small projects as a completely self-taught programmer. So I would do like um, a bit of JavaScript and I was primarily working with mm -hmm. WordPress and uh, a similar CMS system called Joomla uh, that I was using at the time. And I slowly started selling these solutions. They would be simple websites and simple web shops and so on. And it would it was on the side of my job as a salesman. But I slowly and gradually turned over into full-time freelancing, selling software products. And 
As I got better at that, I started to slowly upskill myself. I learned more advanced ways of building software and I started to get more and better with, uh, I, I got more high paying clients and I started to be included in bigger teams and large corporations. And this that, that would be rather than just me making small things for smaller clients. Mm -hmm. And at some point I had, I felt like I had gotten enough knowledge um, about the industry, about the, the tech industry and about how both small and big companies work when they deliver software. Um, also, as a consultant, I worked with a bunch of startups and I got to sniff around a bit and see how they actually carried out building a SaaS product as a startup and the different challenges they were, were facing. And I slowly started to um, giving it the first shot with my very first SaaS product three years ago, which failed miserably, by the way. But uh, we all have to, to start somewhere, right? Starting with sales, it's, it's really, really interesting. Did you have like a, a formal education in sales? Like, did you uh, go to college? Did you like learn that craft? And and after that, why did you decide to go and sell in the tech area? It was actually a little bit of a coincidence. I, I know I don't have an education in sales at all. Um, I, um, I started out when I was... Uh, young, uh, end end of my teenage years, and um, actually having a bit of difficulty finding out what to do, mm -hmm. and uh, I uh, got into sales by a little bit of a coincidence. And selling software was was just what this company did. It was for the Danish version of Google, um, oh. so it was it was search ads I was selling. So mm -hmm. um, it, it was it was a bit of a coincidence, and I I started there and. Over the the next two three years or so, I um, uh, I became more of an account manager. So I would manage some of our bigger the bigger clients' um, mm -hmm. portfolios uh, at at the time. How did it feel to work for others? Like uh, I guess your first job doing something that you kind of parachuted in, right? Like okay, sales, cool, software, let's do it. How did it feel? Like uh, did you did you feel satisfaction? Did you like that that first gig? <sighs> To, like I've never really enjoyed it, and um, during the time when I was doing sales, I, I normally tell the story as if like I was just working as a full time while doing mm -hmm. freelance work. And the, the truth is, I actually worked five, six, maybe even seven different places in the course of around four years as Ooh, a salesman okay. because it was really difficult for me to to actually fit into a normal job. Yeah, it's not something yeah. that suits me well. I think sales is good. Um, for a person like me in the sense that I would normally not get a regular pay. I would work on commission only. Mm -hmm. So there would be this kind of sense of like I had to go to work and actually put in the effort and there would be like a very direct result and then like a direct correlation right. with the effort yeah. I put in and the amount of money that I could earn back, which was a style mm -hmm. of working that, that fit me very well. Right. And I think it's like... Now, as as a, a maker yourself, like sales is crucial, right? Like sales is is like is there there tied to marketing, right? It's something that you really need to do. Um, do you think that those skills that you've learned are can you like apply them nowadays? Were they looking back? Are they like helpful uh, for you now? To a certain to a certain extent, yes. I I, I at least build up the. Um, the ability to not be afraid of selling and not be afraid of the concept yeah. of marketing, which I know a lot of developers are. But in terms of like applying the direct craft 
then no, there isn't really a whole lot of overlap. I was mm-hmm. doing I was doing direct sales and account management, so that would be a lot of um, building customer relationships and having a lot of like one to one dialogues. Selling in the way that I do now, in terms of advertisement and marketing for a, a SaaS product, where we don't it's a, it's a low touch SaaS, so people go mm-hmm. and sign up themselves, and it's fully self served. It's a completely different way of uh, converting users. So, in in the terms of like the craft, no, not a whole lot to to transfer. In the terms of uh, the mentality, yes, I do think that that did help yeah. starting out yeah. there. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I see a lot of people building stuff, and then they are not uh, comfortable on asking for money. Like they are very shy Absolutely. on going. It's like, hey, would you pay for this, right? So the fact that you are able to have already some training around that, it might be really useful. Yeah, for sure. When did you decide to to do this transition? And and you said, okay, I'm fed up with sales. I, I want to do my own thing. Uh, tell me a little bit about that process. It was um, it was a few years in. Um, as I said, I started to, to playing around a little bit more with my own uh, product development, my own, at the time, it was websites and it was... Uh, it was web shops and so on. And I, I I did that thing that you're often recommended to do with uh, trying to build up a freelance business slowly on the side and then lean more and more mm-hmm. into it. And it was really like that. After a while, I could see that potentially if I projected how much I did right now and, and instead consider that I would do that full time as a freelancer, I would be able to make enough that I could at least do that full time. And at the time... Mm-hmm not having to go up and meet into an office and have a boss was absolutely the dream. And even though I was doing quite well in sales and when you're on uh, commission only, you do tend to earn a fair bit. And I couldn't match that as a freelancer, like not even close, but it was still enough for me to say that like it, Mm -hmm. I, it, the the lifestyle of being free and independent and actually running my own business is it, it, to me, to a guy like me at least, it way exceeds the amount of money yeah. that I can necessarily earn. Um, mm-hmm. So I was pumped about it, and I was twenty three something years old, and uh, and could actually go about not having a job. That was incredible. Would you consider yourself like an extrovert or an, an introvert? I would. I would consider myself an extrovert. So it it comes easy for you to to go out and and speak with people and and you gain energy from that. Yeah. Um, why were you so happy to just stay at home and not avoiding going to an office? Like, wh- why did that bring you joy? Well, I think I think that I've never I've never had a problem with establishing my social life outside of work. I know that this is an argument that comes from many people also in in when we talk about remote work and remote work culture. Then people say that they start lacking on the social part. For me, um, I never mm-hmm. put that much into socializing while I was at work. I always considered that my work. And, and on the side, I had family and friends, and I would take my time socializing out of my free time. And going in as a full-time freelancer would just buy me more of that. So I would mm-hmm. be able to socialize with the people that I chose to socialize with, my family right. and my friends, more than I would be allowed to do if I had a full-time job. That's how yeah. I, I look at it. So you have a little bit more time for, for yourself, which is kind of interesting because one of the questions that people asked a lot on Twitter when I asked around, I said like, hey, what, what should I ask Simon? Was that like, how do you manage your time? Like you uh, transmit this, this sensation that you are like always there, always <laughs> yes. working and you have so many things going on. 
but now you're telling me that you really also like to have your own time with your family, etc. And you want to separate things. Are you able to separate things or are you like just like working all the time? To, to be like completely honest, I probably work more than, than a typical full-time job. I, um, mm. I counted my, my week not that long ago and it's about 60, 65 hours maybe a work Well, in, in terms of how much I work per week, but it's not, I, I get the impression that some people on Twitter think I work 120 hours and I'm just like <laughs> absolutely <laughs> constant, like uh, every single minute I'm awake. And it's not like that at all. Um, but I do work a lot. It's not that I'm not going to sit here and say that I can, I, I get to do all these things. And I also only work like 10, 15 hours a week. It's not, it's nothing like that. I, I do put in, put yeah. in the work, um, mm -hmm. for sure. I think in terms of, of managing my time, um, I don't do anything particular to manage my my time. Um, I'm I'm fairly good at switching context, and I'm good at doing multiple things and kind of like uh, keep track on multiple things at the same time and keep my mm -hmm. focus and can spreading my focus on multiple things. In fact, how I how I prefer to work, it's essential for me to being able to switch. But in terms of the time I put in and how I structure my time and manage, I don't do anything magic mm. there's nothing obscure to it, it i i work on the things that have priority or the things that give me energy at that moment i think right. um one of the things that may that allow me to do a whole lot of things and allow me to be so present all the time is um i am i am very focused on processes and how i can optimize processes so for everything i do i always make sure to ask myself if this is something that I'm now repeating. Is this something I can automate or if this something I can delegate? Or, and if not, if it's is, is it at least something I can document in a step-by-step? -step? So mm -hmm. next time I have to do this particular task, I have a clear-cut guideline and, and a step-by-step -step guide on how to do it. That saves me time. I'm That's also so very, very concerned about every time I do something, um, I make sure to ask myself, is, it, is there at least one or two things from this that I can make into more... Um, general purpose components or building blocks that I can use for a later project. And having done that now for two, three years, I have, we have in my company an internal Wikipedia page that is huge and have very well-documented uh, processes for almost everything. Also, wow. so I can quickly find someone to delegate to and, and hire in and, and not mm -hmm. having to go through a whole lot of onboarding yeah. because the whole thing is very documented. But we also have a, an enormous asset library. So for my YouTube channel, I have a ton of thumbnails that are pre-edited that I can quickly drop in. I have a ton of like B-roll, a whole like stock video library I have made with myself, just filming myself wow. at the computer, doing various things and showing various <laughs> emotions. And I have a ton of packages for code, quick landing page, templates, boilerplate, And for doing ad creatives, when we spin up new ad campaigns, we have a Figma board that is huge with a ton of assets. And that's really the key. So that allows me to not have to worry so much about actually spending or, or structuring my time in a certain way. But I get that when people see me posting yet another YouTube video and then also launching yet another product that they get this impression like, wow, yeah. last time I had to do a YouTube video, it took forever. How can Simon do this? Yeah. But the, the key is that I have now done hundred something YouTube videos. And, and every time I have to ask myself, is there something from this YouTube video I can take and make into a building block that will make editing or producing the next one a little bit faster. And over time, things start to kind of roll pretty fast when you have this many building blocks and well-documented processes for everything. And that's really the key. 
That's really interesting. Are there any tools that are really essential, like the essentials of Simon, like tools that you really love and use every day? Obviously, FeedHive that helps you schedule most of your content, and I believe yeah. you, you are probably the, the first user. Like, what other tools do you do you think are like essential for you? I use uh, obviously I use FeedHive, and then we use ClickUp. Um, I have tried a bunch of these different project management tools. I was a huge fan of Trello for a long time, mm-hmm. but I really found the ClickUp like that enabled me and my whole team to replace a bunch of other tools. So ClickUp is like Trello. It's like it's. I would say ClickUp is more like Notion. It's right. it's both an like a time management calendar, note taking, um, project management tool. It it really does all of these things, and I, I would compare it to to Notion as the closest thing. It's it's comparable to, but uh, I, I prefer ClickUp over Notion personally. I think it's more of a preference thing, but but that's a mm-hmm. tool that I am. Um, very very heavy on ClickUp. Interesting. I will link it in in the in the show notes for so sure. That people can can find it. Going back kind of to our storyline, it's really interesting. By the way, what you just explained about all the processes and how you were able to optimize all of this is really really a fascinating concept. Let's go back then to you. You were like trying to do your freelance kind of gig, and and you told me that there was a project that you started and and failed. What what was this project about? Yeah, it it was my first um, my first real attempt of doing a uh, SaaS product. Um, mm-hmm. I was at the time still uh, working as a freelance consultant, and I was working at a big company. And at this company, I noticed that the managers had quite a lot of um, issues figuring out who was high, who were the high performers on the team um, mm-hmm. on on our engineering team, and. Um, Coming from sales, I knew that this was a key to um, to actually making your your whole team perform as well as possible. It's kind of like the 80-20 rule just on, on a sales team. Uh, there will always be 20% of the, the people on the sales team that perform 80% of all the sales. Right. And it's always about, that doesn't mean that you should necessarily fire the remaining 80%, but it's about like structuring the team in a way where those 20% is... Um, given the opportunity to work as hard and and as be as motivated as they possibly can, while trying to, to focus a little bit more on training the remaining eighty percent, and I was thinking about this, and then watching how the managers at this company I was working at trying to manage our engineering team, and try and, and I, I discovered that there were certain patterns. So I started developing a tool called Sigmetic, which would mm-hmm. basically integrate with GitHub. And then it would crunch a lot of numbers for you and it would start trying to reveal um, how the distribution of code being pushed to the the repositories, how many um, pull request reviews that were done, and so on and so on. How this kind of like distributed among the team members on the team, mostly for the managers to be able to see how does the 80-20 rule kind of apply on the mm. engineering team, but also for the engineers to get more motivated. So I was building this with the kind of sales uh, thinking in mind that there would be a big like a uh, dashboard, uh, like a leaderboard on the wall on a big TV screen that showed like every time someone uh, did okay. extra and it um, and um, you like you might be able to already now hear um, why this product failed miserably. <laughs> that was not that was not uh, clear to me at the time. I thought this idea was brilliant, but as it turned out. Um, 
no developers in the world would want a leaderboard yeah. like that hanging exactly. on the wall. Exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, like, yeah, I absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and um, managers also quickly, the ones I talked to also quickly, um, kind of comment on this, saying like um, they didn't they didn't think that this was the way to keep. First of all, keep developers motivated, but they also didn't think this was the right way to yeah. measure performance in the quality of code. And that was those were all good points. I, I was, yeah. This was me thinking like a salesman and, and trying to take that whole yeah. culture and that logic and put onto a, exactly. an engineering team. It did not yeah. work out well at all. So, yeah, I got the product all the way out and it was actually useful. You could sign up and you can upgrade to a paid plan. Uh, I got exactly zero paying users and uh, no one was interested in this product <laughs> so in the developer world it's like developers are like rock stars right so you need to do something that they are happy with and if you do that's great because they will sell it to the company and they'll be like we need this otherwise i leave but if you do something that they don't like then you will never sell it because they were like yeah i won't i won't do it like i don't want to be in this leaderboard i because it's just like too much pressure too much work whatever absolutely um, i guess the the biggest mistake was not validating the idea first. Would you say that? Yeah, it was not validating the idea. It was um, to to a large extent. It was not listening to the the few people. I obviously I reached out to the team I was working at at the time. That was the most yeah. logical place to start. Not yeah. listening to them and in my my own mind just going no. But they just can't. They 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 just don't, they don't <laughs> want to change. They're afraid of changing. They yeah. they can't I'm, see. I how know better. Yeah, yeah. I know better. Like right. Instead of actually trying to to truly listen, that was the first mistake. But um, I it, it, the actually just after launching this product, this was what started my whole social media thing. Because another experience I got from this was trying to launch this product. Right. Thinking okay, this idea I had that I could go out to uh, two, three, five, ten of my clients at the time and try to sell it to them and they would just be like eagerly jumping on board and they would start spreading the word to everyone and that would be how i made it and this would be a huge success i, I at the time i i believed that 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 would that that would work it didn't when my the very first company i worked at at the time completely rejected this idea so i thought okay fair enough we're just gonna go like reddit and product hunt and try all these things i barely knew what that was at the time and i got i created an account on on indie hackers Never heard about it before. Never heard about product from before. Mm -hmm. None of this. So I tried to go ahead and do a, and launch this product like out in the open. And um, this was the first time where I found out that I no one cared. Like it, me not having yeah. an audience yeah. and me not having any kind of like online um, authority just made it was like yelling out in the void. Literally, no one cared. And this was mm -hmm. actually what 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 triggered me into thinking okay i'm gonna give this product the bullet clearly this was a mistake but now i'm before i'm gonna go on and build my next product i didn't know what that would even be at the time but i'm gonna spend at least a year just creating content yeah. and and building an audience and uh and that's where i started going at it on twitter and uh linkedin and and really starting to to actually share share value that i guess it's the 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 most brutal uh, reality about uh, indie making and, and entrepreneurship in general is that we are always worried that like, yeah, why, what if we don't have the right features and then people don't like it? What if like, we sometimes we worry about scalability. Like what if we have like a thousand yeah. or 2000 people immediately, we need to make this sale. But the true reality 
is what did you say? Like, no one cares. <laughs> no one cares about you. They care about themselves. So you need to solve their problem. That's that's the first thing. So if you're not solving their problem, they, they it's there's no point. And then obviously, uh, then you need an audience. You need a way to distribute your your products because if people don't trust you, they don't know you. Why would they click on your on your uh, just website? Like it's 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 really a brutal reality. Absolutely, absolutely. And I I think I was even in the in the fortunate position to have some potential users that I could ask what they exactly. think about yeah, this yeah. idea. A lot of people don't even have that. But of course, yeah. I I picked the the path where I told myself that uh, Henry Ford. Also didn't ask his users, <laughs> you know the story, <laughs> like the, the classical kind of like they would have uh, wanted faster horses, blah, blah. And every entrepreneur tell themselves that when they get a rejection, like, oh, but the users don't know, yeah. I know better. And uh, <laughs> a, a good start for me back then, now in hindsight, would have been to just listen to the, the user. I was yeah. lucky to actually have some user comment on this idea and to just kind of take that and say like, okay, absolutely no one is going to be interested in this. <laughs> Simon, if I would have... One year, every time I would have heard that, I would have a brilliant passive income because I've heard it so many times. <laughs> yes. uh, so definitely, I think it's it's a really um, common mistake. It is. Um, yeah. You learn from it, which yeah. is really great. Uh, you didn't let that uh, bring you down, or like, what what did you feel like your first failure? Uh, were you feeling like discouraged? Yeah. I, I, yes, I did feel discouraged, and I I remember just after I actually wrote. Uh, no, it was a sentence in um, the book Rework by the guys over at Basecamp that mm -hmm. had this chapter about audience building. That was where it occurred to me that, okay, if I ever want to make everything right here, I need to start uh, approaching this in a completely different way and start building right. an audience. But for, I think, I tried to build an audience for the, the, the six months that followed, and that was even more discouraging because it just <laughs> went nowhere. Like it was, it was a very uh, demotivating experience. But the problem was that I still had this kind of like what I want to get out of it kind of mentality about building mm -hmm. an audience. It was this kind of like, okay, let's just get this audience going fast so I can start selling a, this product or a new product. So in everything I put out on Twitter and on LinkedIn, it would be like, follow me here, also follow me here and sign up for my newsletter mm. and sign up for my SaaS that no one cared about. And this, it was like <laughs> extremely like centered around what I wanted to get out of it. Right. And that just comes through when you try to, to do odd, when you try to do content, especially when you're a small channel. And it was actually at the very end of that, after six months or so, I decided that now I'm going to try one last time for one month. I'm going to allow myself to have one month I'm going to just share value and not going to care anything about what I will get out of it right right now. I'm just going to share value for free. And I started doing this on Twitter and I mm -hmm. did all, I kind of like uh, settled with myself that if I couldn't reach a thousand followers in that month on Twitter, I would just wow. give up on this audience building. That was just like, then I would just be ready to get the end of it. And um, I started doing this and Everything just changed immediately. Actually, within roughly a month, I crossed 10,000 followers on Twitter That's doing crazy. this approach. Yeah, it was yeah. like it was a mind blowing experience. Mm -hmm. And then I also, after that month, a month, six weeks, it was over the summer, I also committed myself to say, like, I'm not going to just go ahead and make a new product and sell something new right now. I'm going to wait until I have at least 30,000 followers on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So I kept doing this for another four or five months just sharing content, not no eBooks or no 
links where people right. have to click nothing, just like share, share, share it, not asking for anything in return. And then and what what content were you sharing back then? Um, it was it was um, mostly at the time freelancing how to um, get clients. Right. Something you know about, yeah. Something I knew about. I tried a little bit with SaaS, but obviously I just didn't have anything. I didn't have any authority to speak about this topic, yeah. even though I was very, um, very interested in it and very occupied with it. You need to have at, at, at like a bare minimum of, of I would say, accomplishments of mm -hmm. some sort in order to, to, to do either you have did, done a SaaS yourself or you have worked at a startup, or you have, or you run a podcast where you have talked to like a bunch of people doing startups, something that gives you some authority to actually mm -hmm. know that you know a yeah. little bit about what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. I, I used freelancing because that was what I had at the time. Yeah. What What was the quality of those first posts? Because now when I when I see your YouTube channel, I mean that's the best. I think probably the best quality of uh, indie make in the in the indie making world. Uh, there's a lot of people doing content, but like when I see those videos, they're like, that's art, you know, like I really enjoy Thanks, it. Man. I think like, man, how much time do you put there with the B-rolls and, and your animations? And now we know that you optimize all of those processes. And now that I think about it, I do remember that like a bunch of images are kind of like the same between videos and makes yeah. total sense. Yeah. Um, did you immediately start with that kind of quality? No, I, I did not. Um... I, after having done Twitter and LinkedIn, mostly written content for a little a little while, I started um, doing these small videos. At the time, I, I wasn't really that um, into video. It wasn't something that I had thought about. But I tried doing these small videos, and it, they worked really well on Twitter. But it was me in my living room just kind of putting up a camera, and it was like a one-take, me trying to explain something about freelancing and that was all but it it didn't have anywhere close to all the editing and all mm -hmm. the things that it had now but these videos did really well people really liked them and and this was a little bit before tiktok blew up so this like idea about these super short videos weren't something you saw mm -hmm. all over the place at the time they did right. really well and a lot of people asked me to put to to create a youtube channel they, they I, I heard that a lot of people saying you would do great on youtube i was very very hesitant in the beginning because i know from others how time consuming it can be to actually do a mm. youtube channel and for a long time i i didn't really want to do it and then at some point um there were some other people that got me talked into just taking all these videos from twitter i had put out and just put them on a youtube channel because at least then people could find them more easily than having to scroll through my timeline on twitter that made yeah. good sense. So I did that. And then I, I tried doing just one long form uh, video where I took it a little bit more serious with editing and stuff. And it didn't take long. Then I was completely mm -hmm. sold by that whole process. I, I absolutely loved it. It was, uh, it was very, very fun. And it still is. And then yeah. I think I just built on top of it from there and took a bunch of tutorials and, and tried to learn editing at, at a complete amateur level. And, and and that I I still am. It's not that I have any. Are, are you editing your videos now? I'm editing my videos wow. myself. Yeah. I, Which yeah. tool do you use? Adobe Premiere. Wow. I mean th that's pro pro level. Like it, really, when I see it, and I, I love <laughs> YouTube by the way. I watch so many creators. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think it's really pro level. It's really the the setup Thanks, you man. have. Everything it's it's really good. So congrats on that. Thanks, man. I'm happy you think so. I, I spent a ridiculous amount of time on it over the past yeah, few years. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's the thing. Like everything comes with time and investment, right? right? People, we only see when people succeed, but to, to reach that success, there's a lot of time that you have to put yeah. and fail and experiment. And that we, we often don't see that. So it, it's great that, that you mentioned it, that you actually spent a lot of time learning this. Like it just, it wasn't, didn't come naturally like you, ne- you needed to learn in no way yeah no in no way uh, yeah absolutely true i guess that then you were like sharing so much content that you realized you identified your first problem which was like there's no proper scheduling tool that allows me to share this new kind of content like threads on twitter and on shorts and like you need a better tool for scheduling right so that's that's i i believe how the idea of fit hive came to be right it it was it, it it's exactly what it was. Um, yeah. When I when I started getting more into content over that summer, I also realized that it thinking in the very same way back then about processes, about how can I scale it, how can I start reusing, so on and so on. I, I did realize that I needed a tool for doing this, mm-hmm. and I was searching around for a bunch of tools, and and quickly saw that there were many in the market already. Yeah. And that was at the time there was Hype Fury, which was really killing it on Twitter. And I actually signed off for Hype Fury, and I really liked their tool and thought, this is great. This is like, mm-hmm. this is a modern and fresh tool that I would be using, but it only did Twitter. And I was very, um, very focused on spreading my content across a bunch of big channels. And then I tried tools like Buffer and Hootsuite and realized that, wow, these are old and <laughs> clunky tools. I would just not want to sit I just imagine being an agency, having to sit a full working day in that tool. Mm -hmm. Wow. I was like, uh, that would not work for me. And this is where I thought like, okay, it seems like Hype Fury is killing it on Twitter. And just very closely after, uh, typefully followed. And I saw like, okay, people really want these kind of more modern lightweight tools. Mm -hmm. Why don't I just build one, but try to see if I can take a bite of the big cake and kind of like replace Hootsuite and Buffer yeah. and AgriPulse and some of these bigger tools. That was the that was the logic by the time. Yeah, it's, let's talk MVP because I think that's also a topic that I would would like to cover with you. So this sounds like a tool. There's so many features that you can implement there, right? Like, I mean, first of all, all the platforms, right? That's already a lot of features. You need to do a lot of yeah. integrations plus threads plus like each platform is like YouTube has shorts or like you have stories on Instagram, everything. What is your approach on on doing an MVP? How do you select the first features that need need to be out in your first version of your product? It's a brilliant question. Um, I would I would say the way I did it, and that, which I would also recommend, is to not to try to not sit and select it yourself, but find users immediately to help to help you get there. Okay, that was I think that's a key difference uh, with Feedhive. I um, I was already in a few groups from having kind of done Twitter for some months at the time. I was in some of these close groups with other content creators. And I was just basically speaking it out there in, in one of those Twitter chat groups that I was going to be building a new tool that would uh, help you schedule content, not only for Twitter, but also for multiple social media platforms. And I would love to do a kind of like a small subgroup where we just kind of, I, I would need help to build this tool. And then I offered them all that uh if you want to join my little group here and try to help me build this mm. tool, um, I'll give you lifetime access on on Feedhive, and you'll never have to pay for it. And I got like uh, 25 people to join this group. And at this time, I had built the simplest MVP in the world. It was literally just a website with a text box, and you could write your tweet there, your thread, and then mm-hmm. schedule it. But there was no more than that. 
And now I just talked with people about which which features would be the most important for you if you were, were to grab a new tool. And the first thing in my case was people saying a lot of the other tools don't have a proper calendar view. They just have this kind of like queuing system yeah. with like a stack mm -hmm. of tweets and they found that annoying. They would like more like Hootsuite as one of the few that actually has this. They would like a proper calendar. And then I thought, great, that's the MVP right there. So I built a Twitter scheduler that could do this kind of queuing right. so you could queue, queue things up automatically. You don't have to pick a time manually, but with an actual calendar view. Mm -hmm. And that was my MVP. And I would recommend every anyone trying to do a new SaaS to get the people in there first right. and then just listen closely to what what they would want to yeah. see first. Which is also all about the audience first approach, right? Like you first cultivate yeah. this audience and then you know the problems and you know the people. Um, yeah. Tell me about, you said that you had like this little group of people, group of content creators. Um, how did you communicate with them? Like, did you create like your own Slack or you have like, you communicate them via DMs? How is this process? Yeah, it was a Twitter, Twitter chat group. Okay. So you just added people as I just as, added people. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And in, in, invited them in there and uh, people were very excited about it and automatically started to bid in with a ton of suggestions and a ton of uh, yeah. uh, great stuff for me to just uh, sit down and build. And I think in, in, in many ways as a founder, that's the best, most like luxury situation you can, you can put yourself in. And having a bunch of people actually almost telling you what to, to build. Of yeah, course, there's the a yeah. bit of like uh, prioritizing and you realizing there's a bunch of things they don't have to think about that you have to think about as a founder, but it helps tremendously with just having mm -hmm. users lined up that basically tell you like, I would really love yeah. a tool that could do this. Yeah, definitely. So you, you built your first MVP with a calendar view and everything. Did you then start trying to make money immediately and try to sell it and try to see if you get users signing up more or less yeah i had uh, I, I launched it in uh, in a public beta i i i built these things with uh, this group for one and a half month roughly okay. like six weeks on on twitter where, where it was like a secret then i announced it on twitter saying that i was building a new tool and then a month later i started getting people in and um because the 20, 25 people that had been helping me build this were, were all big content creators. They all had a ton of followers at the time. And they started sharing the word. And already from that first initial month, I would start the whole building in public things so from announcing that I was going to build it and then just sharing screenshots and sharing various um, different insights and, and updates from the building process obviously got a lot of people hyped up. And when we finally launched in uh, public beta mm -hmm. uh all of these big content creators were sharing it well, and it's brilliant just, what it a brilliant strategy yeah yeah um how let's let's take a, a side note here to speak a little bit about um landing pages because you obviously needed to do one as well and and i've seen it as well your landing pages for all of your products and for me there's kind of two schools of thought uh in regards to landing pages one is you need to uh, explain the problem and like how um, this can help people. And then the other approach is the what. So you basically say, this is a scheduling tool, right? So in, in, in the case of FitHive, you could either say, uh, this will help you save time, for instance, uh, or you can just say, this is a scheduling tool with a calendar view. Uh, wh what is the best way to do a landing, a landing page in your, in your opinion? I think it very much uh, depends 
if you're building a product that, pe that w where people are already very uh, familiar with the concept, that could be, for instance, a social media scheduler. Right. It's better to focus more on the things that make you stand out. So that could, for instance, be a calendar view or the individual features that you have that other tools, similar tools don't have. But if you're, um, if if not that many people are familiar with the concept you're trying or the the way that you're trying to solve a specific problem, mm -hmm. I think it's it's better to be way more outcome oriented. Mm -hmm. um, in most cases, if you're selling something like a social media schedule, yes, there is a part of like focusing on the outcome, like you will grow on social, and that's important. And all, but people mostly get that. It's not something that you have to put a whole lot of effort into. Right. It's actually more helping people guide them, imagining that they sit with your website and then maybe five other websites or five competitor right. tools and they're now trying to do a pick. Help them pick your tool over the other five instead of trying to convince them that they need it because they most likely already know. That, that's, that makes so much sense. It makes total sense, right? So if people already understand the problem, show them yeah. why uh, your solution is better. If yeah. people do not understand the problem, you first need to explain the problem. So normally this means as well that there's not a lot of, or there's less competition or just there's not other tools in the market already, right? Yeah. Okay. Tell me about then the, the first numbers and the first growth, right? You, you launched the beta, you obviously got a lot of traction. Did that traction translate into paying users? Yes, it did. We actually got, um, the day we launched, we got to $300 MRR in the first oh, okay. 24 hours or so. Uh, so that, that was a great start. And then by the end of the month, we had around $1,000 MRR. And from there, it's actually a very boring story because we <laughs> have been more or less consistently adding $1,000 MRR every month up wow. until now. Wow. So it has been like, uh, and we're, we're just around... Uh, 30, 32,000 MRR. Mm -hmm. And um, we have no like explosive growth. We have no months where we just went, where it went downwards. We have, uh, we have, we have MRR growth every single month ever since. It's just slow. Uh, so nothing exponential, but we also didn't have these kind of like, you see some people share these charts where it goes up and then it goes way down and then it goes up again. Yeah. We don't have any of that at all. It's It's been consistently... We've been consistently growing our, our, our revenue um, ever since. So it, it's a very, very boring chart to, to For to me, it's not boring at all. I love that. I, <laughs> I wish. How, how, yeah. how do you bring people to to, to Feedhive? It's um, right now, it's, uh, it's a good mix of organic. So like awareness campaigns that, um, that I run. A lot of them I run myself, and then paid ads. We we actually have a lot of our users coming from paid ads in one way or other uh, or the other. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's really a great bridge for for the paying ads topic because it's something that I I don't know what to think. So I've I've met a lot of um, a lot of entrepreneurs and indie makers, and most of them they never had success with paid ads. They say that they end up, and me included, by the way, like we end up putting a lot of money and the money just disappears. Like sometimes in like, I don't know, in a day you put hundred bucks, it disappears and you see nothing in return. And uh, a lot of people say that you need to invest a lot of money first to take something out. Yeah. Um, is that true? Yeah, I would say so. It's not very different from making content in general. 
it's um it's it, using paid ads is also no silver bullet it's not something that that can magically just make you grow the good part about using paid ads is that understanding how to use the different ad platforms we, we've had best results on facebook and google and understanding how to use the platforms to target the right people is relatively trivial it's actually not that um that, that hard and they have taking a lot of the more complicated things and, and abstracted it away from you. So you don't have to think a whole lot about how to do. And I know a lot of people, they try to sit and do like targeting extremely narrow and trying to do a ton of research and understanding the, their target audience. Mm -hmm. But to this, the platforms and their AI models and their very complicated and sophisticated al algorithms actually have you covered here. So you just let the platforms do the thing. So it all comes down to the creatives. And that is, as an advertiser, that's the part that's on you. You need to make killer ads, ads that almost look like great content in itself. Right. And that's the hard part. I think that's the part that people miss. They, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who think that it is some sort of magic tool. And then when you look at their ad creatives and the it's way sad. they present their offer, it's just, for me, very clear like why this does not convert. Mm -hmm. And I think this goes for a lot of people. I would say like once you get the hang of it and once you start having ads actually work, and yes, hands down, this costs a lot of money. We, we spent more than $50,000 on ads just this year. Whoa. And it costs a lot of money. And it costs cost a lot of money that you waste on experimenting and trying to get it right because it does take a little bit of time. But once you get a hang of it, it is just the best way to acquire people. I call it user acquisition while I sleep. <laughs> In in it's true, know, yeah. because it's just yeah it's the best way to just make something run and then acquire users behind the scenes mm -hmm. without you having to actively do something. So it's just it's it's inherently scalable. Mm -hmm. It's at another level than doing cold outreach or having a sales team call people or constantly. I see some of my competitors on Twitter. They're killing it. They're like I they're like one hundred percent kudos deserved. But wow, would I not want to sit and reach out to influencers constantly <laughs> to try to do these kind of growth hacking and social media uh, constant? Uh, it sounds it sounds exhausting. Right. Instead, I can write and I have a team with me now that helped me out doing great ad creatives and great videos. We can click a button, and once we have made something that works, we find we found a winning ad. We just let it run, mm -hmm. and users just drop in. We don't have to do more. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that sounds that sounds amazing. But do you think that this is something a, a indie maker starting out uh, should should do to try to invest some time or invest money, especially in, in these ads? Yes. Yes. I, I, I'm not sure I would do this as the very first thing. You need to make sure and, and you need to feel confident that you have an... an, an an onboarding flow and a way you know you can convert paying users. Otherwise, it doesn't make too much sense. So in the very beginning, while you're still trying to find a fit in the market, probably not the best way you can use it to to validate ideas and stuff. Mm -hmm. We've done a lot of that as well. But as an acquisition uh, model and as an, as an acquisition channel, I, it's probably not the first thing I would start out with. No. Okay. From, from uh, your MRR at the moment, you said it's like reaching around uh, 30K. How much of that money, it's really like profit that goes to your pocket, or, or or are you now already in the stage where like 
this is a company and the, the money goes to the company and I get a paycheck. It's it's uh, it's actually relatively simple. Um, I moved from Denmark to Switzerland mm-hmm. uh, two years ago, mm-hmm. a little over two years ago, and um, one of the when you come here to Switzerland, in order for them to give you a uh, permanent residency here, you normally need to show a um, a a work contract, a job contract. Right. Otherwise, you're not really let in. So if you're coming here to start your own company, which was the case for me, in order to to have them let you stay, you need to commit to giving yourself a salary. So I have been on a salary from day one since I was here, and from day one since I was doing feed hive, I've been giving myself a salary. Okay. So yes, that that's what I've been doing. Um, but I'm I'm giving myself a relatively low salary, as little as I can get away with mm-hmm. here, and the rest is going into my company. Right. We are profitable, but not by as much as you might think. We, we're actually often maxing out. Um, the the revenue on uh, on trying to reinvest into the business reinvest into doing now link drip and a lo- at, 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 as my youtube efforts starting to grow as well a bunch of the money also goes into trying to to make some of the processes right. more smooth there and, and grow that yeah when did you decide to take that leap so, so because when you first start like in this kind of the idea of when you first started any making is like okay I'm a solo founder, like you have, for example, Peter Levels is a great example of that. Like mostly solo founder, doing everything on its own, uh, doing products that are not necessarily super mature. Uh, they don't look as good as uh, as the FeedHive, for example, but they are enough to basically give him a bunch of money and he basically has no employees. And it seems that you like you have taken the leap to like, okay, we have this great indie making uh, project. Uh, and I have my audience, but now let's make this into like a proper company with 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 employees and everything. Um, why did you decided to take this leap? I I uh, I took it when FeedHive was uh, well around uh, five hundred dollar MRR, <laughs> so not not enough to pay okay. anything. Interesting. Um, uh, so I I, uh, I I had I had some money saved up from my consulting business that I've been doing some. Up the years up until, and um, I thought like, with all respect for my own savings and and still having a little bit to fall back to in case this completely fails, I would have roughly a year of runway. Mm-hmm. So I simply just decided to say like, fair, let's burn this money and just let me just try yeah. to see if I can make this work and then actually make this uh, a profitable SaaS within a year. Right. And there wasn't that much more thought into it, so it was really a just take a leap of faith, jump into it burn the money that I had on my bank account at the time and just see what happens. Not necessarily something I would I would advise other indie makers to do. It's a bit risky, but mm-hmm. this was how I rolled. Right. Yeah. When did you st- start hiring? Like, What was your first hire? First of all, I, I, I'm, I'm going to quickly say that I don't have any employees in my company. I still mm-hmm. don't. We're only working with contractors. Right, okay. Um, so the first contractors we hired in was... Just after we had launched FeedHive initially, I uh, got a few of the the creators that was in the early adopter group um, to jump on board as uh, part-time contractors. Mm. And uh, we got to be a team of uh, five um, relatively fast. I also got one of my uh, my older friends from Denmark to join as a... It was more of, of a kind of like, let's try it out for him being the co-founder. Okay. And um, we were a team of five relatively quickly. And then... Over the course of the next like two three months, it just became clear that like uh, okay, feed hive is not magically growing as we had 
kind of yeah. hoped or thought that it, it might be. It was like, okay, so it's, we, I don't know what we were like. I'm, I'm very optimistic by nature. So sometimes I tell myself some wild stories that I think we can probably do this and it's just going to be like absolutely nowhere near yeah, anything I like that. Same, so yeah. feed high was the, <laughs> yeah, that feed high was the same case. So within the, the next two, three months, we just had to kind of like remove this whole team. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we just let our contractors always go. We saw that we were burning way too much money, way too fast mm-hmm. this way. So we just removed all these team members. And um, my my co-founder or the, the, the co-founder that was trying to be co-founder from Denmark at the time, he was, we, we hit like a tremendous amount of headache with his Danish company working together with my Swiss company. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of logistics that just didn't add up. Right. So he backed out and um, over the summer, it was reduced to just being me again. Okay. And so like um, four months in, I was just alone. And from there, I started slowly building and s- much more slowly scaling up the team Got as it. more money started to come in. Yeah, but th- that's still a very interesting approach because normally, so what I do and a lot of makers that I know, what we do is like, let's do everything, right? Like we, I'm, I suck at uh, design, for instance. I, I, I don't even like it, right? But I try to make it. I go on Canva and make some stuff and then that looks terrible. But I'm like, now I'm a bootstrapper, <laughs> so I'll do it everything. I won't hire anyone. But yeah. now I start to think that maybe this is a mistake because if I'm investing my savings, if I'm investing my time, it's better to do it properly than like, now let's save 100 bucks. Um, but maybe that's the wrong approach. Maybe it's like, it's better to invest these 100 bucks in something that will increase my chances of su- success. Is, For sure. Is that how you think as well? For sure. That's that's at least what occurred to me after after those first three, four months because yes i i completely agree in in getting people on board that um that can do things better than you but it also has a lot of um issues first of all it quickly gets out of hand right and unless you have experience in managing even a small team you will quickly find yourself is a lot of situations where there's just like a tremendous amount of loose ends that you need to make Mm. meet and it it becomes very stressful really fast but i would also Generally speaking, I would advise against hiring in people to do a part of the job that you don't know how to do yourself. Mm. At least play around with it. So is in your example, trying to do design, I think it's great going to Canva and try to do some designs on your own. And if those were for ad creatives, try to actually make them. That I know people who do Canva for ad creatives. It can work, but at least try to kind of set up a fully-fledged ad campaign and burn some money on your own kind of bad designs right. and get get into the mentality of like, okay, so why does this not really work and why does this other one I try to make work better, it seems. And once you have a kind of a, an idea about what a designer would typically do in this role, now you can start delegating. You will mm-hmm. have a much better insight into how to manage them into because they can't read your minds even though they're professionals. So in order for you to guide them correctly to get the best results, it's just way, way, way better that you have at least tried to play around with all of these things first. Even if you from day one know that I'm going to hire someone in in the long term right. to actually do this. I think it's great trying to wear all wearing all the hats and, that, and try the that's, whole thing out. That's a great advice. That's great advice. So, but then when should I hire? Like, okay, I've tried out. I suck. <laughs> it doesn't work. Design is terrible. <laughs> uh, but I tried it. I used Gump. I used whatever, Photoshop. Um, when should I then decide, okay, I, I need to hire someone? 
Well, I would say like um, when when you get to the point where you can write a very clear specification and like very clear guidelines for the work that you need done, that's mm-hmm. a good point to start hiring. If you're going to hire a designer to say, make me a piece of graphic and it just needs to look good because I can't make it look good. Mm-hmm. That's not a very good description. That's a very, very quick way to have a designer not having any idea about what it is that you want. They will be frustrated. You will be disappointed point, yeah. because they couldn't read your mind. And so the first time to hire is when you have done enough pieces of graphic to be able to outline a, a, a like a complete checklist and a complete guideline for what it is that you want. This font, these colors, this kind of rounded uh, borders, you just can't make them all play well together. So you're missing that last part. That's a good time to hire. But I would actually take it even further and say the best time to hire is to just buy yourself time. Hmm. It's the the best thing to delegate is things that you could already do, but you just want to buy yourself time. If you could already do them perfectly well yourself, you know exactly what you want from yeah. a, from a worker. You're able to specify it down to the smallest detail. Yeah, makes makes total sense. Uh, I I love it. Yeah, it's, it's great great insights. So you need to know what to ask for. Like if you don't know, they will give you something that you probably won't work. So one hundred percent. Hundred percent makes total sense. What are your anxieties now? Because, you know, I know the anxieties of people starting out. I know as well because I, I'm the same in the same boat. But once you reach to a point where you are like making thirty two k MRR, I guess the anxieties change. So what keeps you up at night? That's a tough question. I don't actually feel like there is much that's keeping me up at night. You are completely um, relaxed. You don't. You don't. I am mostly relaxed all, all of the time. That's great. Yeah, I would that's actually great. say so. Like yes, I, I think that uh, one thing that right now does give me a little bit of an anxiety is the thought of how well would my company run at the current moment if I pull myself out completely. So how well can my team do with no surveillance and not no me not interfering at all? And the answer would be not very well. I'm still way, way too entangled into actually working in my company and not working on my company. And I think it's a natural step. That's how it is for a long time. But if anything that kind of concerns me a little bit, that would be that. And it is something I'm trying to constantly address to see, can I be even more sharp on the processes? And can I have things even more well-documented so everyone knows what to do and that if I need more people to replace me, can I hire mm-hmm. them and have them actually produce value fast? And that's all down to how well documented I have done everything. Mm-hmm. The whole manual to my company, so to speak. Is that something that you want? Do you want to like work less? You know, you're, you said and you're time. doing... Sorry? It, yeah, in, in time. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Because at the moment you're still doing 60 hours uh, yeah. week, which is, which is a lot. Um, so... Your goal, would you say, in the next... What what are your goals in the next, let's say, five years? Do you see yourself, like, stepping out a little bit? Yeah. Slowly having uh, having the whole thing play on its own more and more, Mm -hmm. and me stepping down, and then eventually selling it. I think, like, there are some people saying, like, no, no, I'm never going to sell my company. I think everyone is going to be selling their companies at some point, right? Either that there's only a few ways it can go it's a SaaS company it's not going to be living forever either someone's going to buy it or it's going to stop being relevant Mm -hmm. and it will slowly die right Right. so 
So hopefully within five to 10 years, I, I have been able to replace myself more and more to the point where I would be able to give this kind of manual to my company, mm-hmm. to someone else, and they could de- deploy a team yeah. more or less directly and start having totally. it work for them. Do you see yourself on the beach or, or skiing and just relaxing, or do you think you will be always building something? I guess that's something that brings so much passion that you cannot live without. Probably. <laughs> but I would probably I would probably go more into YouTube. I think that would be my uh, my main oh, really? thing. I would replace everything with that. And then I would just do YouTube, not for the money, not for getting to a certain amount of subscribers, but for just because I enjoy it and to create value and, and try to share my experience and see other people succeed with their SaaS products. Yeah. yeah. And you can really, like, that's, I don't know about what other thing, but like when I see those videos, I see that the passion, you know, like, and, and when you do something that you love, it's so much easier to get people, you know, around. For sure. So yeah, it is. Yeah. Now the current cha- challenge uh, is Link Trip. Uh, su- yeah. Super exciting. We we are just finishing the interview, but quickly, what are you doing different in Link Trip that you didn't do in FitHive? We're doing pre-sales. So instead of trying to launch first with a closed community, we're actually selling first this time. So that would be the biggest the biggest difference. We we sold a lot of lifetime lifetime deals the past month here, and we now have. A, a bag of money that we can use to to actually build the tool and we have more than 650 early adopters sign off for on, wow. on a waiting list eagerly waiting to uh to get invited into this product and and start using it which is a very nice situation mm-hmm. to be in do you, do you still ask them for uh, suggestions on features that you absolutely build? Yeah. absolutely we have a, a roadmap on a trello where people can come with their own suggestions and people can vote and we are looking at it every single day to try to prioritize to see like, okay, so which slides are we going to prepare and have ready for when we invite people into this uh, private beta that they signed up for here in a few months. Amazing. And we're doing the full community-driven approach for, for LinkDrip as well. I'm so excited to see how this goes. Super excited. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the wannabe entrepreneurs. I've learned a lot and I'm sure they did as well. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Glad to be here. And this was another wannabe entrepreneur. I hope you learned as much as I did. And if you like this kind of content and you think it's valuable, don't keep it just for yourself. Share it with your indie maker friends. Besides that, if you like this kind of interviews, if you want to hear more about the makers in our community, I have been interviewing a lot of makers in the past year. I got big names like Peter Levels or Tony Dean and as well people that are just starting out so you can really hear stories from different perspectives. Make sure to go to wannabe-entrepreneur.com episodes. The link will also be in the description and if you want to send me a message, say hi, you can reach out to me at WBTiago on Twitter. This was another Wannabe Entrepreneur. See you next time.